0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. As we head towards our municipal election this fall, the issue of light rail transit, the funding for it, the money, and uh, whether or not we'll get that money is uh, going to be one of the key promises. Obviously, the provincial election will have come and gone by the time we vote for the next city council, but uh, we'll maybe get a clearer picture about what's going to happen with LRT, or maybe not, depending on who wins the provincial election. One thing is for sure, though, uh, progressive conservative leader, Doug Ford, when he was in town a, a couple of weeks ago now said that, uh, look at if Hamilton doesn't want to build LRT, that's fine. You can still have the billion dollars to spend on something else. Now, uh, that of course has <laughs> caused a, a firestorm of controversy because a lot of folks, first of all, don't believe it. Second of all, they're saying, well, look, you know, he shouldn't be coming in here talking about that. I mean, we've already made a decision on that, uh. Our uh, good friend Andrew Dreschel in and the Hamilton Spectator today is having a little fun with that story and uh, did a kind of a what-if piece. It's sort of like what we've done on the last couple of weeks on the program here of what, you know, would you think, uh, you know, if we had the money, what would you do? I-, I don't know how realistic it is, and I'm not sure how helpful it is in the debate. Let's ask former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany, who's uh, been through this process a number of times, uh, going cap-in-hand to the province and asking for money. Larry, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: Well, thank you very much, Bill. And and to answer your question even before you uh, ask it, uh, it's not helpful what the media is doing because you're stirring the pot. It's helpful and it's interesting for sure because it spurs debate as well. But I'm not sure in terms of public policy direction that's already been set to sort of force a rethink, it may not be the most helpful thing in the world.
1: Well, there are a couple of things at play here, and 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 look at you know, I, I get Andrew's column. I mean, I've done that on the show today or the last couple of weeks as well, because it's a statement made by somebody who wants to be the premier of the province, which I right. view rather skeptically. But we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But from a from a process standpoint, Larry, uh, you know, a billion dollars check from the government to any municipality, let alone Hamilton, really.
2: No, and, that, and that's the the issue. And of course, I don't know the insides of uh, the deals that uh, have been made uh, or how the province uh, plans on financing this project. But uh, Fred Eisenberger, the current mayor, of course, tweeted an interesting response to the Dreschel article, and, and his tweet suggested that this was a 30-year commitment where the funding would come as the construction uh, would be made and the amortization I would suspect or for the uh, uh, for those funds is over a 30year period so his suggestion is that there isn't a pot of money uh, sitting there in a bank account somewhere that can be then transferred to the city of Hamilton and deployed in in various and different projects and and you know what
1: that's an interesting point I think a very germane point to this discussion Larry and and for people that maybe don't Quite grasp the intricacies of, of political uh, cash give-outs, etc. It's it's not unlike, for instance, if if you called me and said, "Bill, I'm I'm going to buy a house for you," uh, and by the way, feel free. Uh, but if you were to do, you're not going to give me the cash for it. What you would do is pay it off, at, 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 get a mortgage for it, and pay it off. Yeah, uh, because you don't have that m- kind of money floating around. So this—it's the same situation here. The province doesn't have a billion dollars floating around. What they said they'll do is pay for it as in increments, like a, like a mortgage. Exactly. But Doug Ford right. seemed to indicate that no, here's a billion dollars if you guys want it.
2: Well, and and you know I, when he was in town, I interviewed him on my, on my little program mm-hmm. uh, and um, and asked him about that um, and. Uh, he suggested that, no, the money, the decision is entirely with the people and uh, uh, through the people, the elected representatives of the city of Hamilton. If they decide on, on maintaining the LRT program, then the money is there for them. If they want to go elsewhere, the money will be there for them as well. Interestingly, I also interviewed Donna Skelly, uh, who's on council and also running uh, provincially um, on one of the Hamilton uh, uh uh, Ridings for the Conservative Party, and she reiterated that. She said, Doug Ford will give the money to Hamilton uh, or as much of the billion dollars as might be available. So there was a little bit of a, of a daylight between the two statements, but, but by and large, uh, entirely consistent. Uh, the, the question, though, isn't so much of intent, political intent, a political promise made in the heat of campaign, and we know that that, that happens all the time then when the various parties take over and form government, then comes the delivery, and that's always harder. And even when uh, decisions are made uh, to honor uh, campaign commitments, you find that, well, we're, we're backloading those commitments, or we're stretching them out over a number of years. And the devil is always in the details. The difference between that promise, where the devil is in the unknown details, and what this current government and the project that's already underway, the difference is that the project is underway. The funding will follow the project. The commitment to fully fund has been made and will be honored. So it's, it's a project in hand versus, I hate to sound clichéd, but a pig in a poke.
1: And and therein lies the problem, because what I think happens when, when we have these discussions, uh, there are some people that just take what Doug Ford's at face value and, and said, well, he's going to give us the money, said he's going to give us the money, so up the hey. And there are some people on city council that believe that, Larry.
2: Well, gosh, and that was really the uh, the disconcerting part, because, of course, newspapers and uh, and uh, other media will follow up on a statement made by someone who is who is, you know, according to the polls, Um, may very well be the next Premier of Ontario, and it's entirely appropriate for the media to follow up and try to get some details, but they followed up with the councillors. And some of the councillors who were supportive of the project backtracked all of a sudden and said uh, words to the effect of, well, you know, I supported it because the money was there, but if the money can be used elsewhere, then my support is sort of tepid at this point. And that doesn't help drive public policy forward decision on this has been made how many times I mean we've had people tell us that you know the, the council voted 30 times 40 times 50 times to recommit to the project and, and and has spent money not only recommitting to the project but has spent money and depending on who you believe 100 million, 150 million spent and or committed um, uh, for, for this project by by Infrastructure Ontario and Metrolinks um, th- th- so you have to wonder about second-guessing yourself uh, when indeed you've already charted a course. And really, we should be looking beyond. And if the provincial government um, is true to its word in terms of assisting Hamilton, then we should be looking at projects beyond the one that's already underway. And uh, rather than making it a political football, and of course, you know, I I tweeted that there's some medium mischief-making here, and it's not entirely mischief-making, of course. It, it, you know, the columnists especially have the latitude to to, to surmise and, and opine on, on many different uh, topics. But, but there's also this. There's a, a municipal election that will fall on the heels of the provincial election. And Hamilton always seems to need a polarizing issue to fight over during a municipal election. And it doesn't look as if we have one unless LRT becomes it. And the media, of course, loves to have stories to write and would love to see a a great big ballyhoo of a fight over this particular issue. Is it good for Hamilton? No, we've made a decision. I I predict this, Bill, that that if we rescind this project uh, because of political reasons, council. Will forever be criticized for missing an opportunity.
1: Well, and we know historically that those sorts of things have happened. There've been some rather myopic decisions made by past councillors dating back, well, like decades. I mean, there was there was a, a you know form of a light rail system that was being presented for Hamilton years and years ago, and the council said no, and uh, the guys just said, look, we want to build this thing, and, and it was supposed to go up the mountain, and uh, the councillors just kind of said, no, we're not going to get interested in that. And of course, they ended up building it over in uh, Vancouver. And right, instead, and
2: it's their SkyTrain right now, which is a great piece of infrastructure, yeah, uh, and uh, public transit.
1: Woulda, coulda, shoulda, uh, you know, I mean, even a baseball team, something a little less, uh, you know, city building type sort of thing. But I mean, you know, when the Hamilton Redbird St. Louis Cardinals farm team was here, it was a ball. They said, Look, we want to improve the stadium in Bernie Arbor, we'll pay for it. But uh, can we do that? And the council said no. So they left. They got, you know, And on and on it goes. So the councils do that sort of thing. And it's not unique to Hamilton Council. We get that. No. But, no. but the concern here I've got is, is they're basing this right now on the fact that, well, we're probably going to get the money anyway. Uh, no matter what happens, even if we say no. And I, I don't have the numbers at hand, but I'd, I'd like to think, because we get money from the province anyway for various things, not as much as I think cities deserve to be getting, but we do get some. And I would venture, Larry, that over the last 10 or 15 years, we've nowhere near a billion dollars in, in money from the province. So why would all of a sudden, would that tap start to flow?
2: Well, certainly not to the city. Now, I think I think this, this government very, has been fairly generous to the city, but um, uh, you have you would have to add uh, you know hospitals and schools, um, as well as whatever we've gotten uh, in grants uh, from the province, uh, and of course this billion dollar uh, infras- piece of infrastructure would need to be figured into it as well. But remember, Doug Ford, if you're going to believe the fact that he's going to give us a billion dollars, you also have to believe the fact that he will give grants to cities if cities reduce their budgets uh, and, and so-called waste that that city has. That cities have. And so, you know, if we're going to be given with one hand, we may have things taken away with the other hand in order to qualify for that money. So there's lots of uh, room for skepticism. I want to believe Mr. Ford when he says that he's sincere about this. I suspect that, that um, um, uh, Donna Skelly might have influenced that, that policy as well. Uh, and we know, you know, she's always been skeptical of this particular program. And so I want to believe that they'll come through but there are so many unanswered questions around that uh, that, that make it a, a, a probability rather than even a, a certain than a certainty, uh, as opposed to the certainty we've got now. We know where the project is going to go. There's been lots of plans around it. Property has been acquired. It's going to help public transit overall, as well as in the corridor that's been de- uh, designed and designated. Um, I don't know why we would want to go back on on that particular project to start all over again with something that we don't know about.
1: But there, you know, that's the equation, I, Larry. Uh, yeah. Whatever, and you know whether you believe Doug Ford is sincere or whether you think it was just uh, hyperbole, it's, it's really inconsequential because I, everybody who gets elected, I don't care what political stripe they are, first thing they do is they look at the books and say, "Whoa, well, we didn't know it was this bad." Uh, and, I mean, we just got that from the course, of the Auditor General last week that you know yeah. they feel the deficit's twice what the government's saying it is. Yeah. Uh, and and who knows? I mean, you know, so it's it's the I think the best case scenario you can say about Ford's promise is it's possible that that could yeah. happen. and and I, yeah. I'm really skeptical about that, but is just not put this back now in the city council's lab. Is this city council gonna make a decision about probably the biggest infrastructure project in their history based on a possible
2: funding? Well, and that's the calculation they have to make, right? On the one hand, you've got a project that you know. You may not totally agree with everything about it, but you know what's happening and where it's going uh, versus a whole bunch of questions and maybe uh, a scenario that might be better or maybe not or may not even materialize. So so that's, that's essentially the calculation. Now, having said that, um, there are still some unanswered questions around the operating part of the LRG, and those need to be answered. But you can do that because you know what the project is. You you know you can do the projections on costs. You can do the projections on operating costs uh, as well. And then you'll know what your bottom line is. But that is a calculation based on facts that should be coming before you versus an unknown um, that may be a political promise that may be kept uh, or may be modified depending on uh how the government what, what the new government might want to handle it
1: but to your point i, I, I think lrt was going to be the push button issue in this provin- the municipal election anyway uh simply because i think that the, the the support for this on city council is like a mile wide and about a half inch thick and some people simply voted as you said because they wanted the billion dollars and they'd look silly if they didn't you know at least try to embrace that now that they've got an out uh an exit ramp if we can use that metaphor which is a thing overused in this debate uh, I, I can see a lot of them bailing, and I can see a lot of people knocking on doors this summer looking for re-election. They're going to say, I know I voted yes, but you know what? I changed my mind.
2: Yeah, and that and that is for sure. Uh, and also, uh, you know, uh, add the uh, very uncertain poll in terms of uh, support that uh, Metrolinks did and just released uh, that shows that of all the places where LRT is being built, Hamilton has the least uh, amount of support, although I would point out still overall support the support is in the majority but not re- nearly as strong as as some of the other places where lRT is being built, and that too may be the result of the you know to and fro that's occurred over the last number of years on this project is it on is it off uh, as well as the opposition that seems to be organizing or did organize against this particular project. I, I personally don't get it. I mean, I understand it. I've lived here. I've lived uh, some of the political wars and have the scars to prove them. But I just don't get the fact that, that people are against essentially a train, a piece of public transit infrastructure. And there's such... Um, in, in And I've spoken to some of these people. Some of them live in my own neighborhood here in Stony Creek. Uh, there is such an animus against this project. It's like they've made it into a... A human being that that they want to feed up on. It's a train. It's a it's a piece of infrastructure. Look, I I may be against the I may be against, uh, um, I, I may be against uh, airplanes, for example, uh, because I I think they waste too much gas and they're bad for the environment. Um, and but but I wouldn't deny others from. Uh, you know, enjoying the the benefits of that public transportation. But that's the nature, Larry, that's the
1: nature of politics these days. Everything is is polarized now. Uh, And we'll talk about this again in the future. You know we will. Thanks so much for this today. (laughs) Thank you. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: We already talked about the provincial election coming up on June the 7th. And uh, yesterday here in uh, Hamilton, downtown Hamilton, Uh, The NDP made it official that Andrea Horvath will, in fact, of course, be their candidate in Hamilton Centre. She's the incumbent MPP there and, of course, the leader of the provincial party. But uh, a lot of speculation uh, surrounding this election and specifically about the NDP and what might happen uh, with the possibility of change here in the province of Ontario. Is this an opportunity for Horvath to actually finally uh, win an election? This is a third election. And if not, uh, what are the consequences? Well, let's talk to Peter Grafe about that, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. How are you doing this morning, Peter?
2: Great, thanks.
1: Good. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, uh, Doug Ford's taking up an awful lot of the oxygen in this campaign so far, which is not even officially underway. And uh, the Liberals doing what they're going to do right now. They seem to be sidetracked with uh, their uh, Auditor General battles. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the NDP and, and Andrea Horwath. Uh, There've been, you know, the, it's it's been the best of times and the worst of times for Andrea over her time as leader.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, she inherited a party that was, uh, you know, not particularly strong. She was able to grow uh, the number of MPs, to develop a kind of beachhead in the Niagara Peninsula and Southwest Ontario but hasn't been able to get beyond about 20-21% of the electorate, uh, you know, whereas to get elected as a government, you really need to be somewhere into the, into the 30s.
1: Well, what's been the failing? I, I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, I mean, invariably every time, and not just in this election, but when they just ask the question, well, who's the most pop, which leader do you like? Who's the most popular? She does very well. As a matter of fact, is often in first place in a lot of these things, but it, it doesn't seem to translate into votes.
0: Yeah, well, with our electoral system, you would expect, you know, most cases where you've got 1st past the post-electoral system, you expect a two-party system. Uh, you know, it is a system that uh, makes it really hard for third parties to have any success because there aren't many, you know, votes left in which you could elect people once the two top parties have had theirs. And so, uh, in a way, uh, what's maybe more surprising is that the NDP hangs on, both provincially and uh, federally, uh, given that the electoral system is so unfriendly to them. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's what's the problem? I mean, I think the problem for the NDP is that uh, if you look at where people identify, uh, the number of people who identify as New Democrats is notably smaller than either Conservatives or Liberals. And so, uh, without one of those other parties failing, uh, it's hard to go and find some new voters that would put you in a position where you could win ridings. Uh, you know, where you need to be able to concentrate, you know, 35 to 50 percent of the vote in a riding if you hope to win it. If you're sitting at twenty percent across a province, there aren't too many ridings where you can get to that number
1: okay we, let's let's follow that scenario that you just described uh, one of the parties failing uh, is 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 that scenario developing this year with this election?
0: Well, I mean certainly there's that possibility. Uh, I mean what we've seen again with our, our electoral system, which really means uh, favors two parties, is that since the uh, conservatives have become a much more ideologically conservative party. Uh, we've seen the Liberals tracking a bit more to the left to try and federate all the anti-Conservative vote. And so in most of our elections, we start off with the first period where it's the Liberals and the uh, NDP duking it out about who's going to take over, take against, take it on against the Conservatives. Uh, you know, in most cases, it's the Liberals who win that, although when they have a weak leader, like a Federally, for instance, with Michael Ignatius, uh, you may see the NDP surge, uh, you know, in that case was Jack Layton. Um, And so, I mean, I think that is the the hope for the NDP this time, is that Kathleen Wynne is sufficiently unpopular, you know, that despite putting forward a budget which people seem to like as specific elements of it, hasn't really moved the dial in terms of support or people's willingness to vote for the Liberals, that Andrea Horvath may come to be seen as the person uh, who, you know, might have a chance of beating Doug Ford and might rally then a number of Liberal votes. I mean, I guess the difference uh, with Horvath against Wynne in this is that Wynne is really making a play to try and win NDP votes, whereas Horvath, I think, has also got a bit of a an attempt to say, well, if, if uh, Doug Ford is uh, polarizing the electorate uh, in a in a mood of change and a sort of populist change, uh, there may be some voters who who could be you know either blue or orange. They could go NDP, they could go Liberal, uh, not Liberal, uh, conservative uh, or NDP. And, and Andrea Horvath, I think, is looking at those
1: waters, too. Which is why you see so many similarities, I would think, between the, the Liberal proposals and, and the NDP policy, which uh, mirror you know the, the, the commonalities there, things like daycare and uh, pharma care programs, dental care, things of those that they, they, they've been talking about for quite some time. And I guess they're both figuring this is the time to haul those things out because that's, that's what, well, I don't know if that's what the voters want right now, but they seem to think that's what's going to curry some support.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, last time out, in the last election, Andrea Horvath received a lot of criticisms for running a campaign that uh, did not seem to appeal to, to too many of those questions. Uh, she was criticized for not being active enough on the minimum wage, uh, for not putting forward sort of new social programs, uh, you know, not having a significant offer on child care and so forth. But I think Andrea Horvath knew that in a situation where, uh, you know, you're competing with the Liberals, the idea of kind of winning somebody who can be uh, more or who can spend more, uh, you know, maybe that works for the Liberals to take NDP votes, but it's not going to work for an NDP leader trying to take kind of centrist liberal votes. And so uh, Horvath, uh, you know, we had this kind of blue NDP strategy of going towards, you know, the interests of drivers uh, and trying to see yourself as being, you know, less of the sort of free-spending New Democrat and more of the populist who cares about your pocketbook Uh, and, and, uh, you know, worked for her on the Niagara Peninsula, worked for her in southwestern Ontario. Um, So I think, you know, again, this time there's some similarities in the platforms, but again, I think Andrea Horvath has decided she's not going to try to out-compete the Liberals on who can spend the most. Uh, You know, we could say that Kathleen Wynne's childcare platform, which is, you know, free for everyone, uh, you know, is maybe more uh, progressive than Andrea Horvath saying, no, we should actually make sure that people who earn a lot more money pay a bit more for their childcare. care. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think Andrea Horvath, again, is is saying, well, she's going to compete more on questions, say, of health care, and then maybe the dental care is her sort of unique calling card, and not be so worried about the others. I think, unlike last time, she's probably done more to ensure, though, that there's a few things like that in her platform, so that the historic NDP base doesn't say, well, what's this party become? Uh, We're going to vote for Kathleen Wynne.
1: Is there a historical perspective here, uh, you know, to to see why the NDP are maybe kind of spinning the wheels? And, yeah, yeah, you're right, they have increased their their seat total minimally over the last couple of elections, but not to the point, obviously, that they'd like to see. Are are they still paying for the sins, uh, the perceived sins of that NDP government from the early 1990s?
0: Uh, I think most people, I mean, they they remember the name Bob Ray, but uh, the idea of of what that was becomes pretty decent uh, 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 distant as we're about 30 uh, years away. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the, the way that you pay for that is that there's been a pretty competent liberal party in Ontario, at least since the late 1990s, uh, in occupying space that uh, the Ontario NDP at times held, say, in the 1970s. Uh, you know, in a longer-term perspective, uh, an NDP that's sitting in the low 20s in Ontario is, uh, I think, kind of keeping with its historic levels, although at some points, you know, again, some surges in the 1970s, they'd, they'd managed to build that up into the high 20s. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, so in that sense, yeah, there is a way in which they paid a price for the, the public dissatisfaction with the air government in the early 1990s, and they haven't been able to get back into the game because there's been a pretty effective uh, Liberal Party in making the case that uh, if you want to stop the Conservatives, you have to vote for them because they're the viable non-Conservative Party.
1: I, I still hear from some uh, that were NDP supporters back in those days that still, well, they carry a grudge, I guess, is maybe the best way to say, Peter. And, 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 and it's not the economic policies. It wasn't even the deficits. It was the Ray days. And these were people that were uh, union members, for the most part, that, uh, that felt as if that government, that NDP government, betrayed them. And they're not over it yet. And, and I don't know how much of a, a, a factor that is uh, in, in the support or lack of support in situations like that. But I guess political grudges can go on pr- for a pretty long time.
0: Yeah, and I think again, if you have a dynamic where it's uh, liberals against the NDP, uh, figuring out who's going to be running against uh, the Conservatives, and I mean, it's not the parties figuring it out; it's the, the voters who might be in that universe saying, "Well, which of the two am I going to go for?" Uh, you know, in many cases, they have to come up with reasons for their choice, and so uh, you know, these memories of the past, whether it's the Ray days, uh, whether more recently the teachers and being legislated back by Win, I mean, the people come up with stories about why they're one thing or another. Uh, Because, uh, you know, ultimately people have to justify for themselves, not just that they're voting because this party seems more strategic, you know, to to beat the Conservatives. In most cases, people want to be voting for something or, you know, against something a bit more uh, emotionally compelling. And so, yeah, these memories certainly are important and make it difficult for parties uh, when, in a sense, have betrayed parts of their base, or parts of their base felt betrayed by what their,
1: their party did. When we start analyzing, and you know, it, whether it's media, whether it's uh, folks like you in, in the political science realm, and we start talking about where this vote might go, that might go are we overemphasizing that? Because there's a, another, uh, uh, I think, trend that seems to be happening over the last few elections, is disenchanted voters don't necessarily switch from one party to another. They stay home.
0: Yeah, I mean, that will be an interesting dynamic in this race. I mean, I think that's a real challenge for Kathleen Wynne. Mm -hmm. There may be a fair bit of latent Liberal support, but, uh, you know, the success uh, of the other parties in criticizing uh, the Liberals, in the sense, too, that the Liberals have been around there for a long time. Uh, You know, how does Kathleen Wynne excite her base to come out and vote? I mean, and particularly when we looked federally in the last federal election, part of Justin Trudeau's success was to expand the electorate and get young people out to vote. Uh, You know, it's hard to see Kathleen Wynne exciting that kind of passion in in this case. And so, I mean, that will be an important uh, dynamic for the Liberals. It may also be for the Conservatives where, uh, you know, again, will people come out and vote for Doug Ford? Certainly some will be quite, uh, you know, energized by him. There will be other longtime Conservatives who will be a bit worried by him and, you know, maybe again decide uh, to to not come out and vote uh, or maybe to vote for a different party. So I I think those will be concerns. I think last time out, uh, Andrea Horvath had that problem with a platform that didn't speak to the sort of traditional values of the NDP uh, and so you had uh, people either go out to vote for the Liberals or stay home uh, maybe this time she's done a better job of, of reaching out to that base although there's plenty of chances in a campaign to, to
1: disappoint one's supporters What about the uh, the story that I've heard from a number of NDPers over the last uh, well about 18 months really Peter that, that this election coming up in June now is is pretty much Andrea Horvath's uh, last kick at the can here I mean uh, I, I know that in the past, the NDP have actually usually been a little more patient with their leaders than some of the other parties, but, you know, look at the way they, they got rid of Tom Mulcair after his poor dis- uh, performance in the last federal election, uh, and there's we all know that there's discontent, well, there's discontent in all three parties, I guess, really, but uh, they may be saying, look, at, this isn't getting it done, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen on June the 7th, but if they have another third place finish, uh, well, who knows? I mean, this this is one of those things where you understand that your political uh, best-before-day can uh, come up pretty quickly uh, when the folks in the, uh, the, I guess, the rank-and-file in the party start to have some problems and concerns about you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I have to do the math about how long Andrea Horvath's been there, but it's getting on a decade. Uh, And I think, you know, even for parties that are patient, (laughs) that's a long time to be there. Uh, You've had your chances to to speak to the people, and, and they've sort of rendered their decisions. So... In that way, yeah, I think in many ways there'd probably be less pressure on Andrea Horwath to resign this time than last time, uh, given the disappointment uh, in many sectors of the NDP about the, the platform that they ran on last time. But I think uh, probably Andrea Horvath herself would say that after a decade of uh, touring around the province, uh, you know, that's probably more than than she wants to continue to do. I mean, in the past, uh, NDP leaders have sometimes hung on in Ontario because there weren't obvious heir apparents. Uh, it's not clear who the heir apparent is in the Ontario caucus. For a while, people thought it was Jagmeet Singh, but he's now the federal leader yeah. of the. Uh, but they do have a number of uh, you know younger uh, MPs that they've picked up through a variety of by-elections, and so there might be a space for uh, a new leader. Again, if if Andrea Horvath was to finish third, I, I suspect she would decide to retire uh... relatively soon after the vote
1: with uh... in that same vein though uh, uh... if in fact the the demise of the liberal party as being predicted right now actually comes to fruition on june 7th uh... you would think the uh... the same discussion would be had about kathleen Wynne.
0: yeah i think there's there's no doubt i mean we saw some uh... rumors in the press that people were asking for her to resign about a year ago uh, not thinking that she could make it through to the the election uh... successfully uh, she refused uh, to, to hear those voices, uh, probably wisely, given her success in past campaigns. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't think many premiers like to stick around after they've lost. Maybe in the old days, we had these lions that stuck around for a long time. But most of the time now, it's a decision made almost on election night. Uh, uh, obviously, if we were in a minority government situation, the story might be a bit different, where Kathleen Wynne might dream of coming back, uh, you know, and pulling a Pierre Trudeau in 1980 or something like <laughs> that. but. Uh, otherwise yeah I suspect she would say that you know she had her success uh, she achieved a number of things in her uh, I guess about five years now as Premier of the province and uh, would probably then be willing to turn the page.
1: Well and, and part of that legacy is going to be I mean I'm sure that a lot of people would love to write that, that legacy about Kathleen Wynne but she's in fairness she's won two elections nobody really thought she was going to win except maybe her and a few you know people in her inner circle.
2: Yeah
0: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the difficulties, if one was talking about legacy, and of course it's too soon to write her off, uh, I mean, I think she a pretty masterful campaigner, and she has a strong uh, party behind her. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the difficulties is that on the one hand she invested a lot in this idea of balancing a budget uh, and coming into a balanced budget and held off on a number of other things that were dear to her and that she'd promised to move on as a social justice premier only in this last budget to then move away from the balanced budget. So it, you know it's hard to know how with time people will craft uh, the the story of what she achieved because in some ways uh, she proved pretty indecisive on the kind of the core trade-offs of whether it was all about balancing the budget or you know, developing a certain number of programs uh, that would be befitting of a social justice premier.
1: We've got lots of time between now and June 7th, and probably a lot of time on election night, I guess, to pontificate and to maybe uh, wonder what if and what have coulda, shoulda. But if she had stepped down a year ago, would, you, would that have made a significant difference in this campaign, do you think, Peter?
0: Uh, probably not, because it's a, a government that's been there for a long time, and I think people are rightfully a bit tired of it or a bit cynical about promises of new priorities, asking, well, why weren't they there before? Uh, But, I mean, there is a particular vehemence uh, of dislike for Kathleen Wynne. I mean, I think it it fits to any kind of politician. But, uh, you know, I think there's a certain sexism, maybe even a certain homophobia in the the virulence of the attacks that we've seen. Uh, I mean, in in some ways we're seeing around the world a kind of a loss of reason in politics or a loss of reasonableness and and, uh, uh, sort of the politeness between leaders is gone. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I think that's probably playing a bit in this question. I mean, people are not willing to look at the Liberal Party. It seems to me at the moment because, in part, they are tired of Kathleen Wynne. Uh, whether a new leader would have already burnt out their sort of freshness is is another question. But uh, again, I think that can be overstated. I mean, governments that stick around for 15 years in most cases have a hard time winning elections because they uh, pay the price for all the decisions people don't like over that time where the things that we do like, I think, we're, we're a bit faster to forget.
1: I know they always point in Ontario history to, to the Conservatives and their 42-year run way back when. But that was a different time and place, wasn't it? I mean, that was post-World War II. Money was, now, I wouldn't say it was plentiful, but uh, it was a lot easier for governments to, to stay in power then, especially the Conservatives, because they were in growth mode and, and there was a lot of money for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and across the country we had governments yeah. that hung on for a long time in the different provinces. Yeah, I mean, it was... The the change in the world and the security in people's lives that came with the welfare state, that came with relatively full employment. Uh, I mean, people had confidence that things were getting better, and uh, they felt that the the governments were part of making that happen. And, uh, yeah, those governments generally lasted a long time, whether it was Duplessis in Quebec or uh, Douglas in Saskatchewan, uh, the long Socred rule in Alberta. Yeah, so across, uh, maybe also we were more deferent to our political elites and less keen to uh, be finding them wanting and more prone to see them, you know, exercising good judgment. So it may be also that we changed in terms of our expectations, as well as, you know, the the times changing and our government seeming much less able to ensure us that uh, continuous rise in prosperity and security.
1: Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor at McMaster. It's always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. I'll talk again soon.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: It's uh, time for the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring joins us here uh, in studio. How are you doing this morning, Mr. Mayor? I'm doing great, Bill. Uh, busy times. Uh, elections, elections everywhere you look. Provincial election, municipal election coming up. Uh, and lots to talk about and related issues. Uh, in the last hour, we were just talking about, obviously, the most contentious issue here in the Hamilton area being light rail transit and the impact that the provincial election uh, is going to have on the city of Hamilton. But uh, Burlington has some issues that are uh, really going to be hinging on what's going to happen in, uh, on June 7th, isn't it? Well, uh, to, to
3: some degree. I mean, I guess the big issue in Burlington is development, that yeah. we spent a long time, uh, seven years, Um, working on the development of a brand new official plan for the city. And council adopted the official plan last Thursday, and now it goes to the region uh, where the region has to put their seal of approval on it, and it's going to take 210 days for that to happen. So we've had lots of discussion with the community. You know, it's interesting. We're a city of 183,000 people, and we had lots of delegations last week from the development community that weren't happy with aspects of the official plan. Uh, we had a number of delegations from residents who weren't happy with aspects of the official plan. Uh, so recognizing that we had both developers and residents uh, opposed to it, that that may be a good indication that we were isn't that in the, the right isn't, spot.
1: Isn't that the uh, the yard for, for poli- politicians? If everybody hate you, then you've done a good job.
3: <laughs> Maybe, <I> mean, <laughs> you know, but it is interesting. But but the reality is, with all the work that we've done through. Uh, we've gone through. We've heard a lot from the development community. We've heard a lot from residents, and I believe we've improved our official plan as a result of the input that we've we've heard. We've 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 drafted and, and passed some amendments to uh, to improve the plan. Uh, so we've come a long way. But at the end of the, the process, I think we all knew that we would never get one hundred percent alignment in the community about the. Uh, adoption of a of a brand new official plan. So, but having said that, uh, I'm very pleased with the work that council has done. I'm very pleased with the work that uh, the development industry and the residents have uh, provided us as far as delegations, uh, and, and we've we've considered everything that we've heard. Uh, very carefully, and I believe we've ended up where we
1: should. There are so many variables, though. I mean, basically, for those that don't know, because you and I have talked about this many times on the program, uh, official plan is basically, how is the city going to grow in the future? Exactly. Uh, where is it going to grow, and in what fashion is it going to grow? And you've got all these, uh, these uh, outside influences on this. Some people don't want to see any growth. Uh, some people don't want to see that kind of growth. Some people say, just open all the barriers, and let's see what comes in. Others are just saying, yeah, do it, but just don't do it in my neighborhood. And you, you've got to take all that into consideration.
3: We've got to take it that all that into consideration. And I suggest in the history of the city of Burlington, there has been no uh, new official plan that has garnered as much attention as this particular process that we've been been through. And the why re- is that? And the reason for that is that very obviously that we are not we don't have any more room for traditional subdivision suburban type development. We don't have any more room to pave over farmers' fields like we've done in the orchard and the Alton community, uh, just to name a few. We do not have any more room to do that. We have we're protecting 50 percent of Burlington in uh, the greenbelt and we are fostering and encouraging and focusing development within the 50% of Burlington that's our, within our urban boundary, and there's already development there. So we're talking about redevelopment as much as anything, and we're redeveloping areas that are, areas that already have development, and there's nothing easy or simple about it.
1: Uh, by the way, I, I don't want to drag you too deeply into the provincial election, but Toronto Star just ran a story this morning. I just saw it on Twitter from Robert Benzie, their uh, Queens Park reporter. Uh, dug up a, a campaign promise that Doug Ford made, I guess, when he was running for this, that he was suggesting opening up some of the Green Belt, which I would think would not sit well with you.
3: No, it wouldn't sit well with me. It wouldn't sit well with the residents of Burlington, the vast majority of people.
1: not uh, the story doesn't say where. It just right, said that right. he's open to the idea.
3: Well, I mean, the Green belt's what, 1.9 million acres across yeah. uh, southern Ontario, you know, it makes so much sense to preserve natural heritage systems, preserve agricultural and rural land, and protect it uh, from development. But there are some communities in the Greater Toronto-Hamilton area uh, that would like to open it up to certain areas for uh, for more development, and in the greenbelt. And personally, I'm against that. Uh, this is a great asset that the province has. Uh, Imposed on us that we're protecting 1.9 million acres of natural heritage land, of rural land, of agricultural land, from major development, and we need to be, we need to be tough and, and uh, maintain that.
1: Now it was very controversial when this policy came in, and this was under the McGuinty government some years ago. Uh, for the way in which it was done. As a matter of fact, former remember Rob McIsaac was on that committee. He was if a big part of it. Yeah. He was a big part uh, of Rob it. Rob was really the kind of the driving force to kind of bring everybody together. And I you know, and they made the recommendations and even those recommendations were were controversial because there were some municipalities that thought, well you got that area right, but no you missed out on this one. Uh, and the province gave the municipalities some flexibility after so many years to, to reevaluate that. But I think the rule basically is uh, if you're going to take something out, you've got to put something of equal or or greater value in when it comes to size, right?
3: Yes, I I believe that's the case. We also have to recognize that there was a review that just took place under the leadership of David Crombie recently. Uh, about the Green Belt. And uh, that was celebrated very recently, the tremendous work that that panel did uh, trying to deal with all the different issues around development interest, around uh, agricultural interest, around interest in preserving the natural heritage system. Uh, you know, I was at an event at Queen's Park, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago, where David Crombie and his whole panel was recognized. And David stated very clearly the importance of having a plan that's just not about the ecology, it's about the ecology, it's about community, and, and it's about uh, the economy as well. And uh, there's all sorts of things that, that elected officials have to juggle when it comes to planning uh, for the future of our communities in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. And I believe the Green Belt is a great asset that we need to protect.
1: Well, no matter what you're doing, any kind of planning at all, from a municipal standpoint, there has to be a, par- a plan. There have to be parameters.
3: Absolutely,
1: there needs to be parameters. And and that I don't want to say it didn't exist before, but they were pretty loosey goosey in the past. Now at least this gives you some structure.
3: Uh, much more structure. You know what you have to. You know you know what you're dealing with, uh, and it gives you the ability to focus on what you need to focus on.
1: So, and again, that's speculative at this stage, and I haven't heard the response from Mr. Ford as to whether or not he's standing by that or, or what's going to happen. But it does, I, I think, underscore just how important a provincial election is to, to cities and planning and a number of other issues. Now, you talked about the debate that was going on about the official plan, and and obviously, you know, you told us a long, long time ago that, uh, that the old plan was outdated and it had to be uh, given a retrofit on this. But uh, some of the proposals for downtown certainly have acted as a catalyst. Now now that you've got this plan, how does that impact what's gone on down there? Well, th- my
3: objective is to provide a lot more certainty with, with regard to development in the downtown. We encouraged official plan amendments and zoning bylaw amendments in the past to facilitate new development in the downtown. Now that there's more than ample interest in developing downtown, we need to have some more clarity and predictability uh, with regard to what should happen in the downtown. Because
1: I know that OMB decision that came down a little while ago was was less than complimentary about the old plan and, and, Correct. and Burlington's uh, structure as it was back then.
3: Correct. So the best thing we can do as far as uh, creating more predictability is to adopt and approve an official plan sooner as opposed to later that is fully compliant with provincial policy. Then we've got a document that we can defend and uh, we can defend in a very strong way and be in a good position when there's challenges to our decisions at the local planning and appeal tribunal.
1: But it can't be retroactive.
3: No, it can't be retroactive. So,
1: I mean, once this gets passed, and of course, as you mentioned, it has to go to Halton Regional Council, and, and that's going to happen. Actually, it
3: doesn't just the te- technicality here, Bill, it doesn't go to Halton Regional Council. It goes to the Halton Region Planning Director. Ah. The Planning Director has been given full responsibility by the Ministry of Municipal Affairs to uh, approve the lower tiers, uh, the, approve the lower tiers official plan.
1: So that process will, will go as, as it's supposed to do. You hope everything's going to go and all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that's going to happen. But you've still got some issues with downtown with some of the proposals that are before you now. Yes, yeah,
3: so we do have some issues. Uh, so we do have a 26-story uh, uh, building that was uh, approved by the Ontario Municipal Board that the city is, uh, is appealing that decision. Uh, we have a decision that was made in November that I certainly didn't support uh, for 23 stories uh, right across the street from Brant Street at the northeast corner of James and Brant. Uh, there is an application in for a similar sized building uh, right next door to it at the opposite corner, the the southeast corner of James and Brant. Uh, and there's a, in fact, there's a neighborhood meeting tomorrow night on that particular uh, development. So I'm, 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 I'm uh, for me, we we need to. Um, Somewhat r- restrict development in the downtown. We have 17-story buildings uh, in the downtown, and I believe the vast majority of the area um, that we should not have any more than 17-story buildings.
1: How can you let's let's talk a little bit about that, and, I, and maybe you can get into some of the aspects of the, of the plan, uh, the official plan that you've talked about about controlling growth like that. And 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 again, to put this in context, I guess we need to look at what downtown Burlington is now. Uh, as opposed to what's being proposed in some situations, and and it's, it's got a, almost an old town feel to it. Yep. If you go along down the, uh, Brand Street there and, it, and Plains Road, it's just one of these fabulous areas. Uh, yet you've got people all of a sudden that want to invest in this and now they've done it in the past up in the north part of the town but as you say you're you're tapped out there people want to live downtown absolutely how do you accommodate that and at the same time try to maintain what a lot of people want to see as the character of downtown Burlington
3: So, so I believe that there's some components in our in our official plan that help preserve the uniqueness of downtown Burlington. And that is, you know, one of the precincts that we come up with is the Brant uh, Main Street uh, precincts, which limits buildings at the Brant Street frontage of up to three stories, and but can tear us back up to 11 stories as you tear us away uh, from Brant Street to maintain that sort of low rise feel and that, that that nice feel that Brant Street has. We also are allowing uh, 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 buildings anywhere from 12 to 17 stories in the downtown core precinct. I do want to point out, though, that there is a process. So we've, we've passed an official plan or adopted a new official plan that goes to the region for approval. The next step that we're in the middle of right now is developing an area-specific plan, which will be much more detailed and focused and definitive about what we want in the downtown and the areas around our three GO stations. In addition to that, we need to draft a brand new zoning bylaw that fits with the official plan to assure, to put some parameters and restrictions around the development that we will uh, accept in downtown and look at lenses of compatibility and how it fits in and how it connects with the street and how it contributes to the ol- the overall um, downtown ambience. So, Just because we've adopted an official plan does not mean that is the be-all and end-all. That is an overarching document, but we are developing area-specific plans in the downtown around the GO stations as well as a citywide zoning bylaw, which will be much more prescriptive than the official plan.
1: Okay, but if I'm a developer and I'm interested in in building something, commercial, it could be high-rise, whatever the case might be, under the old system with the Ontario Municipal Board, I mean, Burlington Council could say, no, Bill, we're not going to allow that where you want to put that. I I could simply say, well, I'm going to the province, I'm going to the OMB, and we would argue back and forth. So in other words, they could override uh, the council decision if they so chose. OMP is gone now for all intents and purposes. It's been phased out. It's been replaced with another board. We're told that this is going to give municipalities a lot more sway and a lot more, uh, I I guess, uh, uh, coverage as to what needs to happen in the cities. Uh, Are you comfortable with that? Do you feel that's actually going to happen? Because, I mean, you're going to be before them pretty soon. Uh, Absolutely. We're going to be before them very
3: soon. So the guidance that we've been given by Ministry of Municipal Affairs senior officials is once we have a new official plan that is approved and is compliant with provincial policy, we'll have a lot more teeth and in our decision-making process than we have now because you're right in the past developers were always able to go to the Ontario Municipal Board they will still be able to go to the new local planning and a tr- appeal tribunal but they won't be able to start a hearing fresh from the very beginning they will have to deal with the development application that council has turned down and go from there and, and uh, foster some sort of uh, negotiation it will not be as long and drawn out as it's been in the past and it will defer more to council decisions and will encourage more um, discussion and negotiation uh, with the municipal government as opposed to being forced to cast a decision.
1: Well, yeah, because the, what they've seen in the past, a hearing could te- technically say, okay, City of Burlington, uh, developer, you state your case, now you guys state yours and we'll decide which one is best. Right. I, you you feel now that under this new system, if if your official plan is solid and you abide by that official plan and say yes or no, so let's say no, is the onus on the developer then to prove why they have to do this? In other words, the, your decision stands until, you're, in other words, you're innocent until proven guilty.
3: They would have to prove that our, uh, if they're challenging our official plan, they would have to prove that our official plan is not compliant with provincial policy.
1: All right, and that would be the, because you can't just say, well, I want to do this anyway. There's got to be a legal reason for this and a legal justification for it. Correct. And, Absolutely. And, and that puts the onus on the developer then as opposed to the city.
3: I, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> so I'm cautiously <laughs> we're, we're optimistic. We're talking in generalities so here. We're
1: I know you don't want to get into specifics.
3: Yeah, but, but we're, we're, we're talking in generalities, but I'm cautiously optimistic that once the city of Burlington or any city that's and going yeah, through this. This is, this is for everybody. This is, this is province wide. Once a municipality has a, a, a provincially compliant um, official plan and if a development comes along and the city believes it is not compliant with provincial policy and not compliant with our official plan, if that is indeed the case, we should be in good shape.
1: Because you know this is, is not unique. I mean, I'm sure you know, Mr. Mayor. There, I mean, Hamilton's going through a bit of an issue right now. They had a long study and some public input as to building heights in the downtown area-specific plan for
3: their downtown. Absolutely, yeah,
1: and and there are a lot of folks that are upset with that. And and you know, it may well end up before the province once again in situations like this. So this is it's a new ball game and it's a new set of rules and. And I guess we're going to have to wait and see until somebody actually tests it to see how effective it's going to be. Absolutely.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is with us here in studio talking about uh, things uh, from Burlington and uh, issues that are happening there. Obviously, planning issues we've talked about, the Ontario Municipal Board, some of the more contentious issues going on with development downtown. Uh, there's another issue that uh, is going to be relevant to just about every municipality as we head toward municipal elections right across the province this fall, and that's public transit. And I know it's something that your council spent a lot of time on.
3: Yeah, more recently we've spent some time on it. We increased our budget uh, this year by about 8 or 9 percent to address some operational deficiencies. We've hired some some, uh, full-time drivers, more full-time drivers. We've converted some of our part-time to full-time. We've used some some of the um, public infrastructure money from the federal and provincial government to buy some new buses and, and, and handy vans uh, but recognizing that Burlington will continue to grow and we don't have room to build uh, or expand our road system we need to invest more in transit in fact we need to invest more in in mobility in general and not just not just transit but we had about a year ago, we hired a lady by the name of Sue Connor, who's a, who was the director of transit for Brampton, who saw significant increases in Brampton because of her work. And she's done a great job since she's been with us. And she's signaling where we're going to go, that it's going to take us some time to get where we need to go. Uh, but we're planning to introduce some, cha- some changes in September. Um, minor tweaking. One of the challenges we have, Bill, is that when uh, a bus finishes its run – and say it's behind a little bit because of traffic or whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, it's supposed to turn around right away and start another route. So it starts the other route, well, it's already behind. So that gap, that gap, uh, we're going to minimize that, or we're going to uh, address it, that w- that gap won't be an issue, that we will be able to start you know, return routes on time. And uh, so there's a lot of operational deficiencies we will be adjusting uh, in the next little while and have been adjusting to, or have been addressing. Uh, we're also going to be moving the buses to the south side of the Burlington Go Station in 2019. Right now, they go to the north side, and I believe that the vast majority of people would prefer to go to the, uh, to the south side. You know, we've identified the fact that 50% that, um, of our routes in the city, our transit routes, have 80% of the ridership. And so we need to invest more money in some of our more popular routes because there's a demand for it. So, you know, over the next number of years, we're going to transition to a more frequent network. We're going to have a clear network of arterial roads that will have 50-minute all-day service uh, that we will progress to, as well as connection for in the middle of the, of the grid so people can get to uh, a mobility hub or they can get to um, a bus stop to catch the... Uh, uh, to catch the normal uh, transit system, as opposed to running um, less e- less frequently used routes through our neighborhoods that just don't get the traffic.
1: But you're a chicken and egg situation with those less frequently root- used routes, aren't you? Uh, you know, are they are they not used as much because they're not effective, or are there enough people there that like transit? And There's not enough density. There's not oh, enough okay, density not yet. In, in a lot of the routes.
3: And, and you know, recognizing that we're focusing on growth in the city. Uh, Our primary growth areas is the uptown and downtown areas, plus around the three GO stations. Our secondary growth areas are along Plains Road and the other areas, as well as some of our older retail plazas. Um, So those are the areas that we really need to focus additional service on and get the transit system improved, have more frequency, you know, before the development gets in there, so that when people move in, transit is there and people don't establish their transportation habits because if you put the transit in a year or two or three after the population has been there, they've already established their habits around transportation. And studies have shown that you need to put the new transit routes, the more frequent routes and sooner as opposed to later. So we're putting together a, a, um, a plan over the next 10 years to significantly improve and add to our existing transit system.
1: How would you grade the uh, the, the, the customer satisfaction? I guess one of those parameters is ridership obviously, but are, are Burlingtonians happy with the system they've got? Are they happy with the level of service? Uh,
3: I would say the common element where people are happy is with the quality in the customer service provided by our drivers. People are very happy with the drivers. I would say over the last number of years they haven't been happy uh, with the service, but with the connections that we've had and the outreach in the community and with the work that Sue Connor and her team are, are planning, I would suggest that people are uh, are more happy, but they're more happy about the future direction than what we've been able to deliver on
1: how you, quite yet. How are you able to use the uh, modern technologies to try to help that? I guess it's a debate that's going on in Hamilton, and we've seen this happen in other cities. You know, using GPS technology to track where buses are, how quickly they're going to be able to go there, uh, how long am I going to have to wait when I go and stand on Brand Street waiting for public transit, that sort of thing. Other other cities are me that. It's not cheap to do that sort of thing, but it does, most of the time anyway, uh, increase customer service and customer satisfaction.
3: With our iPhones and our other handheld devices and the access to data that we have, um, we have access to so much data and information, it's important that people who are using transit have some uh, idea if a bus is going to be late uh, or how long it's going to be late for and so on and so forth. So uh, we will be exploring those types of uh, of, of technologies in the future, but also we are going to be installing on our buses technology, Bluetooth technology, that will cause the traffic lights to change when the bus approaches it, to give the transit rider some advantage. For, I'd like for one using, of those. For, for, <laughs> for, Yeah, me, me too, for that matter. But that, this will allow uh, transit uh, routes to be more effective for the buses to move more quickly uh, through major intersections. But I do want to point out sort of longer term. You, you know, Innisfil, and um, you know, just south of Barry, yeah, has has established a relationship with Uber mm-hmm. to be a public transit provider. They are very spread out, very um, uh, very spread out. They're not a dense uh, community, uh, so they're using Uber to provide some public transit. In their community. So there's a conference actually in in uh, Vancouver in the middle of June, that I'd love to be able to go to that I can't because of the timing, where they're bringing in speakers from Uber, speakers from Lyft, they're bringing in uh, you know somebody from Ennisville. they're bringing in uh, some people from Europe who have developed technology that will allow access to a number of different options for mobility. So I guess I see a day in the not too distant future when you will be able to enter your origin and enter your destination of where you want to go and when you want to go there and the app will give you all sorts of different options. It'll tell you that there's a rideshare program close by that you can you can use a car, or if it's a short trip, there's a bike available here. If you don't have your own bike, uh, it will say that you know. Eventually, when there's autonomous vehicles, there's an autonomous vehicle in the area that you can uh, you can book. Uh, you know, the easy transit route uh, is uh, is available uh, at this point and goes to, and, and will take you so far, and then rideshare will take you uh, another distance. I believe that technology is going to allow us to be a lot more efficient and a lot more. Um, user-friendly as far as coming up with options for people for mobility so it's not just about transit it's coordinating transit with those other forms of transportation so that when you look at your app there's a there's a, a wide variety of options for you to choose and and you can choose the one that's most convenient for you at that time
1: that's the natural progression though isn't it i mean we you know you've got cities municipalities that are offering information about their public transit but you've got like i think the sobe bike program here uh, there's Uber, uh, th- 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 a coordinated site where you could say, here's what's available to you. You can do this, this, or this. Oh, by the way, there's a bike site a uh, block down the street from you.
3: Exactly, exactly. It's providing information. You know, wi- Without without technology, uh, you wouldn't be able to do this. But with technology, we can be a lot more effective with our mobility in the future.
1: 905-645-3221, uh, star 9900. Your questions, your comments from Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. Tony, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning?
2: I do Go ahead for the mayor. Uh, a, Hi, Tony. A, a, maybe a possible solution for some of these things. Were you saying that uh, there's some areas that uh, don't have public transit, transit, uh, transit uh, like in some of the surveys. Uh, I heard uh, one time there that there was uh, buses that would run down a certain area, and then if you needed a, uh, a ride on a bus or had to get to a bus, the bus would literally go... Like make a detour and come in and pick you up in your area and almost like a, a darts, and uh, it would uh, carry you to another area a transfer point or whatever it is and I was just wondering if that would be applicable in uh, some of these areas that are being in the outer suburbs
3: absolutely in fact Oakville, Oakville does it uh, right now in certain areas of, of their town, and uh, we can certainly do it in in different areas of Burlington where it's appropriate. Oh, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Tony. All right. Good good idea. Uh, And I know, you know, variations on that theme. Different municipalities have different programs. There's a taxi share program, I know, in the east end of the city that was rather popular. Uh, You can't be everywhere at once with with buses and public transit. And uh, that coordination between other forms of transportation to try to to feed into some of these systems, I think, is essential, uh, especially because... Uh, the debate's always going to be that, well, what am I paying for and what am I getting for my taxes? Well, uh, a more dense area is going to get a lot more service just by definition.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Uh, but then there's the tax situation, and I don't want to go down that road. We <laughs> spend a lot of time talking about that, and I guess a lot of time in the next couple of weeks talking about municipal taxes and where it's going. Uh, got a little bit of time left. I want to touch on a couple of other issues uh, before uh, we finish up here today. Uh, you've got an anniversary for TechPlace, uh, first one-year anniversary?
3: Yeah, it's coming up in, in June, oh. and uh, it's been tremendously successful. Uh, the seventh launchpad company has now joined uh, TechPlace. And uh, the technology-based entrepreneurial firms uh, are thriving in TechPlace. They're getting the support uh, that they need to, to grow their businesses in a meaningful way. We now have a company from Finland that has landed in, in, in tech TechPlace. Uh, it's been wonderfully successful so far. But I also want to point out that tech place is not the only shared office space in the city or, or, or um, hubs like this. You know, we have the Hive, which has moved to the Crossroads Center on the North Service Road. There's the Founders Club at Harrington Court, not far from Walker's Line, and, and Harvester Road in and, and Burlington. Uh, that is happening as well. And within the city of Burlington, there is is sixty square 60,000 square feet of shared office space offering 140 desks um, in, that, in that particular space. So there's lots of opportunity for, for young budding entrepreneurs to get into space, the right space for them, depending on what their needs
1: are. Are you surprised at the, at the interest in foreign investors in, in this area? And I mean, I'm talking about southern Ontario, because we've seen similar situations like that here in Hamilton with uh, the, the Innovation Park and the Innovation Factory. And so, Well, Freinhofer just uh, started here a little while ago. A couple of years ago they made that announcement. But, uh, but we're, we're on the map. I mean, we tend, I guess, to be insular and just think, well, we're just, you know, we're just the Bay Area here. But folks mm-hmm. in the other parts of the world understand what's going on here.
3: Well, the greater Toronto Hamilton area is 7 million people, growing to 10 million people in the next 25 years. Greater Golden Horseshoe area will be like 13.5 million people uh, in the next uh, 20 or 25 years. Uh, we're close to other major markets in, in North America and the States. We're only 45 minutes from, from the border. Um, no, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. If you want to have a launching pad uh, for North American operations, the Greater Bear Area is a great place to locate your business because you have prox- You're in close proximity to transportation, to a number of different airports. Uh, you're cro- close proximity to the states, close proximity to the harbor, uh, close proximity to to the 400 series highways. No, this area is a pretty pretty and, great and area. And they for understand
1: that. I mean, they're looking at the potential here, and, and and I guess one of the key elements to what's happening here is the uh, the sense of collaboration uh, that that Burlington and Hamilton of developed over the last number of years. Uh, you know, working with city councils. I mean, it used to be some of the no-brainer stuff, like, okay, waterfront trails, you know, it stops there. It should Yours stops here. Well, let's just make this one big project and work on that, the botanical gardens. I mean, there's a lot of shared responsibilities right now, but we've seen uh, an economic uplift in both areas because of that collaboration.
3: Yeah, our unemployment rates are at, at lowest they've been in 17 years or, t- or, or 20 years. Um, both Hamilton investment and Burlington investment are on the upswing. In the city of Burlington, we have over 1.1 million uh, square feet of uh, commercial and industrial development in the pipeline. Uh, that we know a lot of that's going to happen uh, this year. Uh, there's there's continued interest uh, through our Burlington Economic Development Corporation with companies contacting uh, the BEDC because they want to locate in Burlington. Uh, and the same thing is happening in Hamilton as well. No, there's a lot of lot of interest both. Both cities are strong these days.
1: Uh, Which, by the way, just a quick segue uh, because the Economic Summit will be coming up. And again, another great collaboration between Hamilton and Burlington. I guess that's going to be at the RBC again this spring. Yes, in June. Yeah, I believe that's the timing. We'll talk more about that. I haven't got
3: all the details yet, but I I assume. Neither do I. (laughs) 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 But
1: I'm sure I'll be told about it because we usually do our program from there. Uh, There's a couple of events coming up. Uh, a, A term that maybe some citizens may not be familiar with is Mondialization. Uh, and that's really a, a, a partnership, I guess, between, well, in this case, Burlington and other cities around the world. And uh, we'll talk about the festivals first, and then we can talk about the concept.
3: Yeah, so on Saturday, May the 5th, there's two events happening. One is at 11 o'clock at Civic Square in front of City Hall, and that's our annual Canada-Netherlands uh, Friendship Day, and where we celebrate the friendship between Canada and the Netherlands, and we celebrate the relationship, the Twin City relationship, that Burlington has with the city of Apeldoorn. And it's always a great event. Many people from the Dutch community come out, as well as others, uh, come out and, and students uh, present you know their connections that they have made with Apeldoorn uh, students uh, and then there's going to be a slam poet, uh, Dan Murray, uh, giving a tribute to Apple Dorn, uh which I'm very much looking forward to. And then in the afternoon at 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock at the Art Gallery, there's a Sakura Festival, which celebrates our relationship with Itabashi in Japan outside of Tokyo. And uh, we've had a long-standing t- long relationship with Itabashi, and every year we celebrate uh, Japanese culture at the Sakura Festival, where we acknowledge the Japanese culture. Um, um, are the blossoms that are coming out mm-hmm. uh, on the maple trees, Japanese maples, and we celebrate um, all all the culture in in Japan at the Sakura Festival at the Art Gallery on Saturday, uh, May the fifth, between one and three.
1: But in not just Burlington, but just about every community, though, Mr. Mayor, people are going to say, "Look at you know, tax dollars are tight. Why why are we spending time and energy and money with mundialization? What's the benefit to the city?" Oh, I
3: think there, there has been tremendous benefits to the city of Burlington in connecting with uh, both Itabashi and, and, and Appledorn. Uh, there's been citizen exchanges happen on a regular basis. There has been um, uh, cultural exchanges. There has been students connecting with other students. There's been pen pal programs. Uh, there has been students from Appledorn and students from uh, from Burlington that have collaborated on doing research for um, veterans that are buried in the Holton Cemetery in in the Netherlands. Uh, there are all sorts of advantages, and you look at the cost of the relationships we have, they're not significant, but we're not, you know, Canada's not an island unto ourself. Burlington or Hamilton are not islands unto ourselves. It makes so much sense for us to be connected uh, internationally in our own way uh, with these uh, these cities that we have good relationships with, being Apollodorn and, and Itabashi.
1: Well, the Dutch have a very soft spot, of course, for Canadians That's, anyway, I, because of World War II, and of course it was Canadian troops, that that liberated uh, Holland uh, back in those days. Well, Fred Eisenberger can tell you about that. Yes,
3: absolutely. He was uh, born
1: there. He was born, of course, and uh, his, he used to tell stories about his mother and dad, telling about exactly what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, there's a very warm relationship between those. But I, I, I understand the benefit. I just wanted to, to put it and, on the record. And, and
3: we were, there's going to be two veterans of World War II there on, on Saturday that helped uh, liberate uh, the Netherlands in 1945. that's always special when
1: we have our veterans
3: participating in in any
1: events. Uh, All right. We're just about out of time. Uh, Thanks so much for this, as always. Uh, For the calls we couldn't get to, I do apologize. But they can reach you at Burlington City Hall if they they have an issue and want to bend your ear. Absolutely.
3: 905-335-7607 and mayor at burlington.ca.
1: Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. Thanks as always, Mr. Mayor. Thanks,
3: Bill. Appreciate it.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.